What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the first episode of Armchair Producers of the Year 2022. Good God, that is weird saying that. Uh, this is episode 132. I am one of your hosts, George Terran. I am joined, as always, with the man, the myth, the talent, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you? On this I morning? am fine and dandy, thank you. Uh, mm. Welcome to the future. Mm-hmm. Still waiting for my jetpack. I'm just waiting for a hoverboard. Frankly, hoverboards, jetpacks, you know, I'm not fussy. I mm. would settle for a co- vaguely competent federal government right now, but you know, um, <laughs> it's a wishful thing. Come on, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm probably asking for a bit much. So, you know, like um, people who actually <laughs> plan for the future, who you know, it is a sad state of affairs where it is more legitimate to think that we are actually gonna get. Hoverboards to get packs of first, yeah. Before a competent government, <laughs> oh. I mean, we, we haven't. This is an election year for for us in Victoria, in Australia. So, you know that that we will be um have our chance to have our say. Yay! We've got the tagline for the election: whatever you vote, you lose. <laughs> Pretty much, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, twirling, twirling, twirling towards the future or something. <laughs> like that, you know. I voted for Krithos. Don't blame me. Uh, but we are, of course, a p- deeply political group of people here. We are not here to talk about politics. You can do that any day of the week on genuine, legitimate news sites like InfoWars and uh, and uh, One American Network and Newsmax. But we are <laughs> here to talk shit about movies and disagree with each other. That's what we do. That's exactly what we do. And we've got a bit of a packed show. We're probably not going to get to everything because we had last week off because we're allowed some time off occasionally. But we've got our chain movie of the week, which Travis picked following Melissa McCarthy from a la- um, last episode's very well respected by both of us, uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um, going through to the Doug Lyman directed, John August written uh, ensemble cast primarily famous i guess for katie holmes because of the time that that was coming out she was a big starlet in in hollywood at the time go the um as you put it beforehand it's kind of like a tarantino light and i think going back to it i think there's a lot of validity in that statement um i would be picking the new link in the chain um we both saw matrix resurrections we've both watched the first episode of the book of boba fett um i want to talk about the latest korean tv show on netflix the silent sea as well as just rounding off my thoughts on season one of the wheel of time and travis has got about a thousand things thousand things which you probably won't get to so let's not promise things we can't deliver just yet we'll just leave a big question we 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 will just you know you'll have to be surprised you stick around to the end and find out it's it's a roller coaster this show, ladies and gentlemen. Genuine roller coaster <laughs> of the worst kind, right? Um, the kind of a kind where you go, has WorkSafe had a look at that recently? Mm-hmm. I'm not getting on that thing. Rehearsing, we don't know the meaning of the word. Should we start with the latest blockbuster? Um, you know, uh, yeah, Matrix with... Resur- Resurrections. We've Resurrection. kind of been anticipating this for a little while. Yeah, I mean, this is just getting straight into it, just the the prelude, I guess, before going into the synopsis. This is a um, a movie that I don't think anyone really genuinely thought was going to happen until suddenly it was announced it was going into production because Matrix came out in 1999 and it came out and it 
change the face of Hollywood blockbusters. Let's, let's be honest, as well as associated media, what with um, branching off and doing its sequels, the Animatrix, the multiple Matrix games, um, and being mined for so much reference and source material and inspiration in so many other um, movies. I mean, one of the biggest was you probably think of um, Equilibrium with Gun Cutter and how they did that. So like, oh, they're changing the way they do um, attacks and how they're, they're showing action sequences and things because of the Matrix effect. But also um, parody beyond belief in oh my God, everything yeah. you can possibly imagine. Yeah, everything. Um, and then a few, couple of years later, I think it was three years later, we got Matrix Reloaded, and then the following year, Matrix Resurrections. It might have even been just six months between the two movies. Yeah, Reloaded and Re Revolutions. Revolutions, yes. Yeah. Um, which had very, very divided opinions, largely negative. Um, number two, Matrix Reloaded was still, I think, more on the side of positive than negative, and then Matrix Part 3 really went into the deep end of a lot of met metaphysical, um, self-referential kind of stuff. And um, it left us our taste. Are talking in terms, of IM in terms of IMDb scores, Reloaded has a 7.2 and mm. Revolutions has a 6.8. Mm. So sort of a yeah. downward slope, but not a catastrophically downward mm. slope. No, not at all. Um, but it definitely left a very sour taste in a lot of people's mouths because... I think a lot of people, the way that the first Matrix ended on such a high with Rage Against the Machine, Neo flying up into the sky and going past, it was like, wow, that's that's awesome. And they went a very, very different direction, which is absolutely their right. Um, the Matrix re, uh, Resurrections is, in my opinion, very much a sequel to the other two movies and not in the same spirit as the first matrix movie but at the same time it does kind of ignore the other two movies in a lot of ways yeah um but uh, before we get too far down that rabbit hole should we do a little bit of the um the blurb of the plot synopsis yeah if, if there is one return to a world of two realities one everyday life the other what be lies behind it to find out if his reality is a construct to truly know himself Mr. Anderson will have to choose to follow the White Rabbit once more. Hmm. That is the INDB blurb initially. I'm sure there are some more detailed ones. Um, we, should know, we, should put the, we should put the spoilers on yeah, here. Yeah. If someone hasn't seen this yet, it's been out for a couple weeks, I think. Yeah. Um, if you want to see it, you haven't seen it, um, you know, uh, probably best to not pay attention to this because we're going to go into probably – a bit of detail about this one. Yeah. Um, so it, it's kind of the um, the Force Awakens of the Matrix universe, but done significantly worse. Um, yeah. In the sense that it kind of follows a rough, the rough beats of the original Matrix film. Mm -hmm. But it's like you're right in the sense it kind of well it follows the storyline, the basic plot line of the first one of you know get Matrix get you know uh, Neo out of the Matrix and you know fight robots um you know it, it also then takes all the shit that people hated about the reloaded and revolution sensors and filters it through that um i think it's fair to, to be upfront about this is, is i hated this um yeah, I, 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 this, is, 
not the worst film I saw last year because I will give props to Lana Wachowski. Um, Lily is not back for this. Um, I will give props to Lana that what she was attempting here had a high degree of difficulty. And in the same way that, say, I would give props to Ryan Johnson for trying something different for Last Jedi, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, unsuccessfully, Mm -hmm. but that is up for debate. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Lana was trying to do something a bit different with a reboot, sequel, prequel, whatever the fuck this is. Um, Reimagining almost. Whatever this is for a film that, you know, a a new film from, you know, an old property. Mm. Um, she was trying to do something, I think, a little bit different uh, rather than mm. your standard J.J. Abrams Force Awakens. So she did yeah. take a piece of that, but spun it uniquely. Mm. Um, that's not that's that's that's, that's you know admirable. Um, a, and a, not- a very brave choice, especially the way that they tried to tell this story with being so self-referential. Um, everyone is aware of the Matrix in the in the real world that we meet Thomas Anderson. Um, it's a game that he designed and created and became a great phenomenon and phenomenal success. And um, he's dealing with the ramifications of that, as well as this nagging feeling that there is something more to it. And I, I posted on Facebook, my thought of this, um, the problem of being re- self-referential and literally showing us sequences from the original movie is yes, you get that. I remember. And that fond nostalgia thing. But if you don't do it well, you consistently just visually very viscerally reminded. You remember this wasn't this better. Well, I remember seeing a con going to a concert many, many years ago and seeing the Foo Fighters, the band who mm. I think I've seen better days. Um, and I remember Dave Grohl and the band were playing, started playing Hell's Bells by ACDC, I think it was. Okay. And um, and he stopped after about a minute of playing Hell's Bells and he said, I have a personal rule. Never cover a song that's better than anything you've ever written. Um, And, you know, fair fair play to Dave Grohl. Um, It is a better song than anything uh, Foo Fighters have ever written. Um, (laughs) But I think that also applies to cinema, you know. Don't cover Mm -hmm. something that's better than what you're doing now. Like, yeah. and that's everything from the original films, even the ones I didn't like were mm. better than this, mostly. Yeah. Um, and you're right. Those sort of, just to flip back. So, the, so, I mean, to give people context, there are scenes in the film where almost Lana's recreating that scene from the original series. And mm. in the background, literally, we have the we actual the scene that she's recreating. She's recreating a scene in front of the actual scene that she's talking about. Mm. Um, And you sort of see that original scene, you go, that looks so much better. I mean, I loved it how those previous films had that greenish tinge to them. Mm. That looked cool. Um, uh, And seeing, so we have some of the familiar characters, obviously Keanu's back as Neo and Carrie Ann Moss's back as Trinity. Mm. Uh, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith is back as Naomi, which no one asked for. Um, but we have Morpheus now being played by Yaha Abdul-Mateen II, who mm-hmm. is, I think, one of the most massively overrated actors in Hollywood. Um, and we have Agent Smith back being now this time played by generic white good-looking man, also known as Jonathan Groff. 
<laughs> like the guy was like, I, I, he, you might know who, who was Jennifer Groff. He was in Mindhunter. He played the brilliantly named Holden Ford. Um, <laughs> just, just makes the strains laugh. Um, and then, uh, and look, I liked Mindhunter quite a bit, but mm. he was a generic white, good looking man. Mm. Uh, generic white, good looking leading man in that series as well. He's kind of like, that's just, he's no character. He's just a guy with a square jaw and a pretty face. Like, mm. And then when you see him doing his Agent Smith thing, and then you see Hugo weaving, you're like, yeah. fuck me, Dad. I don't know what you needed to do to get Hugo back. Apparently there mm-hmm. were talks. Maybe it was scheduling. I yeah. don't know. You needed to get Hugo back for that. And I don't know what they were playing at with not getting Lawrence Fishburne back. Maybe he couldn't do the stunts. Where the, he didn't want it. Lawrence said he wasn't, ta- he wasn't asked. So... <sighs> I don't know. Like, maybe he wouldn't want to do it. Fair enough. In that case, then you got to recast. But yeah. what he said, he wasn't asked. Mm. So that makes me think again. So I see Morpheus doing it, Lawrence Fishburne doing Morpheus, and I see fake Morpheus, dollar store Morpheus here. Mm. Um, and I'm like, I want the real one. Like, I, well, I want to watch that. This is making me want to go back to watch The Matrix again, not watch exactly. this. Exactly. It didn't help this movie at all having persistent references to something that was better in every way and we have a lot of other extraneous characters like um like i really like her as an actress i think she's been really she was really the only real good thing of um uh iron fist that's jessica Hendrick, yeah and um she definitely brings she's got genuine ability and when she's on screen she she captures your attention but her character doesn't really do much of anything of value um you've got neil patrick harris's character who's the uh, therapist of um mr anderson and it's an obvious reveal of everything that's happening with him it's like okay and oh really you're you're doing Neo's tricks. That's that's your big thing. And just everything about that whole thing just stank. And it was kind of like a lot of people at the end of Matrix reloaded when he when Neo is talking to the architect and he's like vis-a-vis ergo blah, 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 blah. And talking very high end computer language almost. People, a lot of people didn't like that because it was a lot of exposition dump and they're right to not like it. But it still kind of fit because that was a representation of a computer pro- computer program that didn't respect humans. And Neil Patrick Harris's character in this is kind of fulfilling that same role, but he's just smarmy. I think the idea is he has replaced the architect. Yeah. He is a computer program that has replaced that program as this program is performing better to create more energy. The basic gist being that he is in Neil Patrick Harris's architect version 2.0, uh, recreated uh, Neo and uh, Trinity um, using, you know, magic or, you know, science. And literally resurrected them and actually rebuilt them and then plugged them back into the Matrix, but kept them just far enough apart, like literally either side of each other, Mm -hmm. uh, and the big pod things in the movie. Yeah. And somehow, because they love each other, that creates lots of energy, more yeah. energy for the machines. And hence, the yeah. you know, the idea is they are more efficient batteries because they are being kept in that particular manner. Yeah. Because they're 
their connection, the Neo Trinity connection extends beyond the matrix. And because they are so close and not able to touch, um, it spreads disappointment through the matrix. And because of disappointment, it creates more, more battery power from each individual human connected to the matrix. It gets kind of messy. And as a concept, sure. Okay. You want to use that? Fine. But then why lose the green tinge that we had for every time they were in the matrix from the first three movies? And why have this much brighter palette in the matrix that we see this time why would you not just keep that because there is designed level of doom and gloom in this world so why are you not representing i don't know why it looks different i mean unless he wants to kick off a new sequel a new trilogy i don't know which is which it has been said is not happening yeah um i'll give this film props for one thing i liked one thing about this film one thing particularly and i was like and and while it was happening i was like you know, this could be one of those occasions where my expectations are actually being subverted. And this actually, you know, mm. maybe Lana's going to stick the landing. Yeah. Um, so the, film, the opening of the film is horrible. It's awful. It's yeah. absolutely fucking awful. It is a recreation of the opening scene from the first Matrix film mm-hmm. with um, Trinity escaping from the agents, uh, you know, running through the streets. You know, where it ends, of course, with her in the phone booth and the truck, you know, smashes into the phone booth and she's escaped the Matrix. Though in this one... It's not quite right. It's not going quite right. The, the uh, actress playing Trinity isn't uh, Carrie Ann Moss. It's a lookalike. And mm-hmm. indeed, we meet we, we, we Bugs and, you know, um, someone someone who perhaps got lost on the way to a hacker's, you know, lookalike convention uh, are watching from the sideline. the cyberpunk cosplay? I, 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 what is his character's name? I don't know. Um, so... Uh, they are watching this scene play out and they're like, oh, this isn't supposed to be like, this isn't supposed to be like this. And it turns out that they're watching a rerun or something or a, a simulation of that particular event, I think. Yeah. Um, then we meet, we move out of a matrix into, um, we meet, you know, as you sort of said, Thomas Anderson, the famous video game designer um, hmm. who, you know, is now facing down the, uh, the fact he's going to have to make a sequel to mm-hmm. his very successful video game trilogy. Uh, his boss is played by Jonathan Groff, who's Agent Smith, and also his boss yep. um, in The Matrix. Um, and he says, well, look, Warner Brothers our par- actually want us to make a fourth one, and if they, we can't stop them, if they don't do it, we don't do it, they'll do it without us. Mm. And he said, can they do it? And he goes, I think they can. I was like, okay, I like this. This is actually a different kind of self-referential. You're not just mm. referencing their previous films you're referencing this film while it's happening and i'm like i know and I, it's the it's the word that comes up every time with this film it's very meta um mm. not facebook but meta um and then there's a whole scene with him sort of video game developers sitting around having conversations about how they're going to develop the next game and people are like oh it's about transgenderism it's about crypto fascism it's about revolution and all these people commenting on what the matrix was really about Mm. And I'm like, okay, I'm really liking this. This is clever because mm-hmm. we've had these, you and I have had these conversations on this yeah. very show a number of times. What is it? And I, one of the things I, I've said many times I respect about the original is that it's so many things to so many people. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've had socialists tell me it's the most left-wing film that's ever been made. You had the, the right, yeah, the, the red pill fuckwits, the men going their own way for all their horrible ideas. 
they thought it was about them, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously I think they've come out subsequently and Lana has said it was about, you know, uh, a, a metaphor for their journey to, you know, you know um, transgenderism and stuff like that. So that's genius. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. This is really cool. And, and like, the developers going, you know, we want to uh, uh, set off their WTF button in their grey matter. And mm. I'm like, oh, this is good. This is a really good scene. But then it just ended and I never went back there again. Mm -mm. Yep. And it, it just died on the vine. And so there's... I feel like it's a growing issue with all of the Wachowski movies since The Matrix of them um, taking on bigger and bigger and bigger concepts and not being able to pull it through to completion. Um, what they did with The Matrix Reloaded and um, Revolution, Revolutions um, some people consider those successes because they were trying they were trying to do something different and i appreciate that they subverted expectations on where people were going to go and i think that's a, a lot of where the kind of, oh i just don't like it kind of vibe comes from but at the same time they didn't do what they were trying to do well either um and then you think of their speed racer you think of um cloud atlas you think of sense eight um, and now this, they are continuously very lofty ideas and they get so many individual parts right through that. Cloud Atlas is a confusing fucking movie, but my God, they did really genius casting for some of them and some of the effects were really good. Um, Sense8, I really liked, really liked the second season and they, they had a very slow first season and the last episode and a half was just phenomenal it really pulled it for me and then the final movie they rushed and they it was too much too quickly and it ended up just not really working for me um the um jupiter ascending could have been a really cool idea but that's some interesting ideas in there but they they just it, it I've, been trying, I've been trying to say this they're not well in this case lana is mm. not a particularly good filmmaker. They are solid, workmanlike mm. filmmakers. I think maybe they are the George Lucas's of their generation. And George Lucas, great ideas man, terrible writer, worst mm. director, mm. but probably the kind of guy who you want to write with. Yeah. You know, you get George Lucas comes in with an idea, you go out and get a, I don't know, James Gunn who's available, you know, uh, and Aaron Sorkin, I don't know, whoever's available who does really good writing. Mm. And somebody can actually really write dialogue, for example, because George was horrible at that. Um, okay. And I think maybe the Wachowskis are in the same space and they have some interesting ideas yeah. um, coming they need to work on, but they need to need to work with good writers and yeah. better directors. And, you know, they maybe, yeah. they, I mean, if you think of something like V for Vendetta, mm -hmm. um, pretty decent film. I think they produced it. I don't know if they wrote they it. They produced it and wrote it. Well, adapt uh, because it's an Alan Moore. More uh, and some good, some pretty decent source material there of Alan Moore. But they did a good job of sort of actually converting the source material. We can see where that can go wrong with the extra, um, with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, of course. Yeah. Um. So, just to give a bit more detail, you think we're just bashing on this film for the hell of it? Like mm. you mentioned, one of the things it looks terrible. Mm. Um. The, the color palette is weird and just not. The action rough. sequences just action sequences are terrible. Yeah, like the, the train sequence. That's a really cool idea of moving 
moving portals to get from one area to another. But then it just became an absolute fucking mess. And people doing these over-exaggerated moves that, unlike in The Matrix, when Trinity's doing her crucifix kick kind of thing, that looked really cool and they showcased it really well. It looks like drunk ballet in the middle of the aisle of a bullet train. I mean, one of the key features of those original films that all formed was how good the fight scenes looked. I mean, Mm -hmm. you said at the start, they changed the game when it came to fight scenes. I remember seeing Mission Impossible 2 with my brother, and maybe, I don't know, six months Mm -hmm. or something after Matrix came out. And I'm like, no, sorry, this doesn't work anymore. You can't do this stuff anymore. Yeah. The stuff that, like, you're doing here, you can't do. Like, it just doesn't work. Mm. Like Matrix has changed the game. You can't pull off this kind of stupid action shit anymore. Now, maybe you could now with kind of a, a wink and a nod, an ironic nod at the audience. Like, yeah, this is a big, dumb 80s action film. Mm-hmm. But, you mm-hmm. know, they, were, they weren't doing that Mission Impossible. Right, right. So, but the, the yeah. fight scenes were coordinated by, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'm totally going to massacre his name. You and Wu Ping. He did, I think, the first three. He is not back for this one. He is 77. So, I mean, fair play to the old fella. Um, but he but, is arguably the best fight choreographer in the business. Um, did he crouching tiger, hidden dragon? I think. Um, yes, I think so. Um, so I, I could be wrong. I think he. But I mean, that was kind of again another game changer. Um, the Ang Lee film. But uh, it's also worth noting that um, the IMDb trivia says this is the first time Lana has worked without a second unit. Um, a second unit, and I believe again from that IMDb trivia, and I'll be corrected that the second unit uh, were responsible for directing the fight scenes mm. in the original trilogy. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, unlike the first two sequels, no second unit was used for any of the action sequences as Lana Wachowski directed all the scenes herself. Maybe that's not Lana's forte, and that's not making any judgment on her as a director or anything of that nature. She hasn't yeah. apparently done it before in these films. Yeah. And they were good. And she's done it this time, and they look awful. The fight scenes are disgusting. Yeah. They, they're, they're horribly shot. They're, they're horribly choreographed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keanu, for everyone loves Keanu, mm-hmm. he can't do it anymore. At least he doesn't look like it. I mean, he was doing it in the John Wick just a year or two ago, so yeah. don't and know what's going wrong. Maybe part of it is, you know, this is – they keep on kind of saying there's, – there's a couple of characters that meet – neo in this version is like oh there's something missing from you and like he can't fly um and he seems to have difficulty controlling his stop bubble i don't know how you'd want to refer to it or force power to stop bullets and he uses it in a a unique way that we haven't seen before when he's kind of pushing things out of the way in the in the final chase sequence but still it it looks trash um so maybe they're purposely making him look a little bad because his character has missed a step. It didn't work. I no. mean, it just makes him, it just makes him look weak. And we're all yeah. sitting here going, "That's John Wick." Yeah. Like, and I saw John Wick Parabellum, and I didn't like it, but he was still pulling off those moves, right? And that was just a couple of years ago. Yeah. So, and I, I think it's, it's pretty well acknowledged in the industry that Keanu works his ass off for these things. You can find training montages of him training yeah. with firearms. And a guy, at least in the training montage, looks like he knows what he's doing, right? Like, that's why the stunts look so good. Yeah. Um, and I just don't know why they decided, if he could yeah. have done these stunts, why he ends up looking so bad. As you know, his only real power now is to 
basically force push bullets away. Um, and that kind of really, I mean, Neo kind of is kind of piss weak in this film. Like, I mean, he was the one. And I think a big point of the film is that there isn't just the one or the one can be anyone or we're all the one and we've got the one inside of us. I think that's part of it. Like the the game that he is when we first re-meet um, Mr. Anderson, the game that he is trying to build and it's behind budget and it's not meeting its targets is a game called Binary, where obviously Binary 2. Maybe it's self-referential in that regard and it's kind of saying, oh, yep, it's, it's a binary system. You need to blah, 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 blah. So like that's all well and good but you are unnecessarily making your main actor look shit. Uh, it's, it was, yeah, I, I was very disappointed in the fight sequences. So, um, mm. We have other returning character here. The Merovingian is back for five minutes, dressed yep. like a cast member from Cats. Yeah, I'm um, so glad he came back. He was one of my favourites. Exactly. It's like he was, who wasn't, who wasn't working, who was prepared to do it? Um, I don't really fully understand exactly what the point of him was in Reloaded. I talked about yeah. that a few weeks ago. I don't yeah. know exactly what the point of him being here was. Yeah, he doesn't add anything. Like, he's part of a group of exiled, exiled. Um, programs. And it's like, why would Mr. Smith choose the Merovingian, who he doesn't do any fighting in that fight sequence. He just stands there screaming like a madman on the corner of the street in London. And looking like one, too. Um, yeah. I've met that guy. His name is Trevor, and he's a very <laughs> lovely man. Um, we have Priyanka Chopra Jones, uh, Jonas, sorry, uh, one of the Jonas Brothers' wife. He's a big star, I think, in, in her native India. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she is actually kind of a, it's a nice link. She plays the little girl from the, mm -hmm. the, pre, the, the revolutions, which made me think to myself, kind of wish to watch revolutions before watching this because I could, I had to show me the scene again because I didn't remember. The little yeah. girl. It was like I saw that film once when it came out, and yeah. never again. Um, but she, apparently, she's not. Um, she is acting a lot, but I think mean, she had the kind of. This is one of her first sort of big Western films, I think maybe because I found her a little bit unconvincing. Mm. Um, then, then again, her character was also ill conceived and ill represented. I think because it was like okay. So we're being introduced to this new world that has progressed and we've got all these different kinds of machines that are taking on these different forms. Why is she a stingray butterfly kind of creature? And what is her program? What, what, what is it that she actually does? We, we don't know. Okay. We've been told very clearly, don't ask those questions. It's there for story. Cool. Okay. Move on. Okay. She is literally the deus ex machina to make things happen. Hmm. from really intelligent writing that they have very clearly shown that they were capable of doing to that. It's, it, yeah, I, the, 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 so the, the plot line there is that there have been, there are now, I don't know, they're like robots that work with humans now. Like there's been, there yeah. was another interesting idea in there. There was a, a point where they go, after what happened in Revolutions, there were mm. machines who decided, the way we'd been doing things wasn't the right way and actually sided with the humans. Mm. And there was something of a robot civil war. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, Ooh, cool. Super yeah. cool. I want to see that. Mm -hmm. Where is it? Make, make it HBO Max TV show, right? 
-hmm. you know, the, the, the Matrix or something or other, you know, rebooted or something and like have the robot civil war and like, mm. fuck it, make it animated. I, I don't care. Like it was cool. Yeah. But they didn't show it. They're 30 seconds of that. And I was, here's a really cool idea you're not going to see. Yeah. Um, and now we get to know that there are robots helping humans and they look really shit, like from like really lousy robots from a Doctor Who episode in the 80s. Um, it didn't notably me. It was just the CGI was actually pretty lousy in this too. The CGI just seemed trashy. And I remember when, um, you know, the, 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 the original sequels, two and three, were being produced, they um keanu reeves famously took a pay cut so that they could pay for better cgi and i remember seeing the final kind of um squidoid creature attack on zion okay. well that doesn't look very good and that's where they put most of the budget and then this comes out and it's like ooh, ooh, dear this just doesn't look good uh, I should note I went and saw this with Michelle, and she absolutely had loved it. Um, really? So um, I would love to have her on and get her to explain the subtext that she mm. read in this. So I just want to acknowledge there are people out there mm. who are seeing something in this that I hadn't seen. This. I guess one were walking out, and I said, I don't get it. I don't understand what that was trying to do. I don't know what it's trying to say. Mm. Some people out there have said she was deliberately shooting us, made a deliberately bad film. To piss off Warner Brothers because that plot line we talked about earlier mm. in the film of Warner Brothers wanting to will go ahead with it well without you apparently is based in reality in the sense that Warner Brothers wanted to move ahead with a new Matrix film and would have done it with or without the Wachowskis involved. Gee, so, I wonder why because they're having their absolute lunch eaten by Disney. Um, and mm. Lana, fortunately for them, I guess I mean you would always prefer the original creators to be involved. Um, when agreed to do it, but I mean, I don't believe that, but I have read that places that yeah. maybe she made a terrible film to basically scorch the earth. Mm. So, just putting numbers on this, just for clarity's sake, this had a budget of 190 million dollars. So, that is a big budget, that is that is a Marvel level budget. And you think about the quality of the CGI and the efficiency of those movies, granted. They are 10 years in. They have got a very well-oiled machine over at Disney on how to use, best use that $200 million standard bracket of movie budget. At the moment, it is sitting on a box office of $106 million. That is not good. It also has a rating of uh, 5.7. So that's that a good 1.1 uh, lower than Revolutions, which is a largely, you know, a film that people generally just didn't get either, didn't like as much either, yeah. but... Um, so, and I, if I could just have one final insult for me for this film mm. was you noted the end of the original Matrix film, he flies into the sky and we get that, come on, by Zach LaRocca. That song. And into, into Wake Up by Raging Spin, which is a fucking great song by a fucking great yeah. band. And I guess in another sort of member Berry's nod, they use the same song at the end uh -huh. of this film, but it is not the Rage Against the Machine version. No, it is the no, Brass Against version of that song. Brass Against are a kind of a, how would you describe them? Kind of a, uh, a brass band kind of mm -hmm. collective who cover popular songs. A collective mm -hmm. group of musicians who share the goal of creating music that inspires social and personal change, but they kind of do big band versions, I guess, yeah. of um, popular songs. And interestingly, I did look this up on YouTube, and mm -hmm. the version you can find on YouTube, it doesn't sound too bad, but yeah. I don't know what they did. They did a different mix or a different take of that song over the final credits in the sense that I feel like I remember them 
not having any instrumentation or any of the, the music behind the singer mm. uh, or the, what do you want to call her, the, the vocalist, who mm. just basically almost raps the, um, the, the, the lyrics over they the They definitely credit. put priority on the, the, the lyrics. And I'm sorry, but the lead singer of that group is not a strong singer. And putting it's like you like you said before, if you're gonna if you're gonna do pay homage to a great, a legitimate cast in stone classic song like that, which was so iconic iconicized as the end of the matrix. Whew, okay, you've really gotta make sure you deliver because otherwise it's gonna sound bad and this just sounds bad. It sounded, I was just sitting there going, oh, I was in gold class. Props to the people at Village Cinemas at Crown, which I've actually improved their gold class offering quite significantly. Um, but, oh, I was just sitting there going, no, this is almost as bad as that time they had Fall Out Boy do the Ghostbusters song. No, I'm fine. Don't need to regurgitate. It's fine. Um, the final yeah. thought that I would like to just put in there is I mentioned it about um, the Wachowskis working on bigger themed, bigger ideas at Sense8. And in this movie, nearly every actor that they worked on Sense8 with is in this movie in some form or another. And it's very distracting. None of them do particularly bad jobs, but none of them do good jobs either. And it's like, okay, you've you've found your your troupe that you want to work with. It's becoming very popular for auteur directors. Like you think of Chris Nolan and you think of Tarantino and you think of Rob Rodriguez and um, Ryan Johnson's now doing it as well, where he has his kind of personal favorites and his just collected group of actors that he likes to use. Okay. That's fine, but you're not giving them anything really good to do here. And I think that this all this movie also suffers in a similar way to The Eternals, which had a lot of interesting concepts and throws a lot of ideas at you, but never spends any time to actually inform them or build on them in any way, shape, or form. This should have been a miniseries. To be able to see the civil war between robots would be fucking cool. To see the negotiations happening where the first robots are being welcomed into human societies oh that's loaded with palpable drama right there but we don't see that we see the end result it's like okay fine but seeing the happy like, happy ever after is not as interesting as seeing the journey sorry it it was it was a mess um yeah. but like i said there are people out there who got a lot out of it if you're one of them let us know. Jump on the Facebook page. Tell us we're wrong. Uh, let us know your thoughts. Um, I've, I've had a lot of people who are like, this is deconstructing the sequel narrative and undermining everything that Holly was doing. I've heard someone say, if Spider-Man No Way Home is the poison, this is the cure. Um, mm. But, you know, sometimes the cure you know, hurts more than the original disease. Whilst, whilst I would agree that Hollywood definitely needs to be shaken up for how it's... Um, what movies it's making and how it's making those movies purposefully salting the land is not the way to do it because if that's what was happening which yeah it just makes every movie investor who unfortunately 
ultimately holds the keys to the kingdom of Hollywood and major blockbuster successes, they're going to look at it and go, well, no, they tried something different. It didn't work. Let's go with the Disney route. And that's just, this is going to kill the industry, frankly. So if you're going to do it, you've got to do it well. You've got to have a very thought out idea that you hit. Simple. Otherwise, don't make a $190 million movie. You make a $20 million movie and let it be a sleeper hit. Just like how um, the Bloomhouse horror movies do their thing. As they go, yep, you've got $25 million to make a movie. Oh, look at that. We made $200 million off that movie. That's a major success for us. Boom, done, easy, move on. Mate, I agree. Um, it was um, a massive disappointment. Uh, would you like to talk about this Kore- Korean um, yeah. show you've mentioned? Yeah, yeah. So, um, ironically, um, another connection to um, Sense8 with the main actress of that. And I'm just going to bring up the details of this. What is your show called? It's called The Silent Sea. The Silent Sea. Ah, yes. Here we go. But a game called The Silent Sea, actually, once. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Bajuna is our lead actress, and she was in Sense 8, and she was also in um, portions of the story of Cloud Nine. Um, beyond that, I don't recognize any of the other actors in the show is directed by Choi Hang-yong and it is here's the synopsis during a perilous 24-hour mission on the moon space explorers try to retrieve samples from an abandoned research facility steeped in classified secrets and it's a really cool idea and ultimately I've watched the whole of season one and just looking at this, there's a potential they could have more seasons. I don't really know how story-wise, but um, it's set in a in a future where water is a genuine precious commodity, and it has been highly regimented. There is a class system that has built up about how much water you can take each day, week, etc. And people generally try and do whatever they can to improve their water class so that they can get more water. We are meeting a collection, this group of um, um, pseudo-semi-researchers, semi-archaeologists who are being sent to this moon base, um, this Korean-run moon base, um, to retrieve these samples. And each of them has reasons why they have chosen this very dangerous, perilous mission. Um, The moon base was apparently the source of a major tragedy about five years prior to the show, um, where there was a radiation leak, as it was reported, and people died there. And that's one of the reasons why people are kind of, oh, it's it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. You've got to agree to to do this. And there's a so like, okay, risk reward factor coming into it for everyone. Um, and essentially going into spoilers, I guess, it's loose spoilers, it gets revealed fairly early, but they have um they find that they the sample that they're trying to find is something called lunar water. And lunar water has the capability of replicating itself. And obviously, in a world where water is a precious resource, having permanently replicating water 
would instantly solve that, and whoever controlled that would be the major power on the planet. Um, so you definitely get that instant kind of corporate espionage element come through here. It plays a little bit like a little bit like the first half of Aliens as they're going back to LV-427. Um, there are def there's definitely some of those military characters. There's not the purposeful, stereotypical, um, I'm born for the core, I love the core kind of characters. They're, they're much more kind of reserved than that. They're not very G.I. Joe kind of character outlines. They're, they've each got their own motives and reasons for doing everything they do. They are actually very well-rounded characters overall. Um, and it plays starts to play like a mystery. There's slight elements of modern-day Doctor Who in it, where it's good budget behind it, but it's still kind of a cheap idea that they're doing quite well. Um, performances are good. The development of it is good, but it doesn't stick the landing very well. And I think it ends up trying to reach too far. But I've watched all eight episodes, and... It's certainly entertaining at the very least. It's no way near as successful as Squid Games or Hellbound, like I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, but again, it's another solid show coming out of Korea. That are you watching the dub version? Or are you watching with subtitles? Because that can actually affect your experience. It made me notice here in Squid Game where there were different subtitles hmm. available, and I found I... it a little annoying when they were getting it wrong. Whilst I'm learning Vietnamese, I am not listening to any original. Um, audio tracks for any Asian countries or any other country languages because Vietnamese is hard enough as it is. So I am watching it um, dubbed but with subtitles. And if any, if that, if there is slight difference on how things are translated for, um, for the audio versus the subtitles, but overall it seems pretty similar. At least the intention behind each sentence and meaning is there. Um, but again, I think this is something where understanding more of Korean culture would probably add an extra layer to it. But I don't think it's essential for for the story that they're telling here. This isn't as socially aware and hyper hyper analytical of Korean society as things like Parasite from last year or the year before or Squid Games and things like that where there is a big difference between it because this is very much a sci-fi fantasy story and it's not spending too much time on the societal side of things. But it's, it's, um, I don't think you would like it. Why is that? Just because I think it near misses most of its targets. And that I would also be thinking it could like, kind of looks a little bit like a, less interesting version of for all mankind a little bit a little bit um it's not on such a grand scale as that and i think if they do have a second season i think they would flesh out more of that side of it particularly bringing in more of the corporate espionage and corporate combat kind of side of things because they just hint at that and they're using there's mercenaries that are mentioned. We never really see them in in the um, in the show itself, but they are definitely 
a known entity in the world of the silent sea um the sheer size of the facility you've got to think they could have other things that they were researching there but how it ends kind of puts a final nail in the coffin but you know maybe they bought the license to doom um they could have been researching hell energy on the moon and you know what you you joke about that but there is a little bit of similarity in style to it wow it could only there be better than the movie version of doom from no. <laughs> it could only be better than the rock movie it's not difficult to be better than a rock movie. I'm sorry. Touche, especially the rock version of Doom. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But I just wanted to touch base on it because it was... No, uh, it's popping up in my search and they go, eh, you know. Yeah, it's not the hard sci-fi that you get something for for all mankind or um, uh, the, um, the Expanse. And things like that. This is definitely more of your soft, pulpy sci-fi and very much more in the realm of pseudo-cliché kind of espionage intrigue of, like I said before, a the beginning of Aliens before it goes into its full action stuff. You never really get into that level of action. But it's, it's intriguing. And what happens with one of the additional characters... Leads to some interesting possibilities if they wanted to follow that as a story later on. Yeah. Very good. Do you uh, want to have a talk a little about Boba Fett before we have a chat to our sponsors for the week? Yeah, we've only had one episode, so um, let's, Be quick. let's talk about it. Yeah, we'll talk about um, it. So this is the, um, the latest from uh, Disney's Star Wars TV division, mm -hmm. if you will. So that's yeah. uh, John Favreau and co., um who are the gentlemen the whole series is directed by robert rodriguez yeah which is fucking incredible um yeah. as an idea i mean mm. we haven't seen the rest of it so i don't know how well he did but the idea of it is pretty cool um mm. those who aren't familiar john favreau kicked off the mcu he directed the first iron man film he mm -hmm. also was the creative force responsible for uh the mandalorian tv series which of mm. course the second season of that set up this series as we met mm -hmm. um boba fett um uh, in that series we um played once again by the incomparable tamura morrison mm -hmm. uh new zealand's own tamura mm -hmm. morrison i remember when i was a kid we used to get uh, wrestling videos but you know um from the video stores the only way you used to get professional wrestling here was on oh, video yeah. yeah no one bothered to broadcast it um unless it was like two in the morning it'd be like superstars of wrestling um, but like, if you got a wrestling video from somewhere, but have a sticker on it saying "featuring New Zealand's own um, uh, bushwhackers," and you'd be like, "This is this is not a selling feature in this country." I'm sorry. But <laughs> yeah. um, Tamira Morrison is back. Of course, he played uh, Boba Fett in um, uh, Attack of the Clones. I want to say. Um, uh, anyway, yes. I, I haven't seen those films for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. And this one, we, we open with him, uh, of course, in the... Uh, this is basically takes place after Return of a Jedi. Mm -hmm. This is the legendary escape from the Sarlacc pit. Which has obviously been one of those uh, Star Wars nerd topics of conversation 
mm-hmm. for a long time. It's like, how are you going to do a Boba Fett film? Because the Boba Fett film has been kicking around as an idea for mm-hmm. a very, very long time. He's one of those weird things. He wasn't in the actual original trilogy for very long at all. Yeah, maybe yeah. five, ten minutes of screen time. Like maybe three lines or something like that. And like, but he was people were fascinated by him. Mm-hmm. And you know, to the point where they've been screaming for a Boba Fett standalone film for probably since the prequels got finished, I yeah. guess. Um, and finally, we get it, um, and we see how he escapes the Sarlacc pit um, using a flamethrower and stealing some supplies from a his fellow unfortunate stormtrooper. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, now prompted other articles going, why is there a stormtrooper in a Sarlacc pit? There were no stormtroopers at Jabba's palace. But we all know the Sarlacc can, you know, take a very long time to digest its meals. Um, a thousand years, are too. <laughs> and we sort of follow uh, some of his um, his travails after escaping the Sarlacc pit, mm-hmm. including being taken prisoner by, um, by sand people. And that sort of juxtaposed of him taking over later on from Jim Jabba and sort of holding mm-hmm. out as the, 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 the plot synopsis for this episode says Boba Fett holds court. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, he, but I kind of said he kind of does. He holds court in Jabba's palace and he receives uh, tributes. Delegates. Yeah. Delegates who will bring him tributes and he meets one delegate who is, brings him nothing. And in fact, is rather than bringing a tribute, demands a tribute. Yeah, uh, causing uh, you know, what I assume will be uh, a kickoff of one of the sort of central conflicts of it's being the mayor of a nearby town, which is a name I can't remember. Um, and he sort of goes off later and, and meets somebody in that town for tribute as well, mm. and is attacked by ninjas of some description. Yeah. And a pretty cool fight scene. Um, what did you make of it? This first episode is very slow, and I think that's very intentional because this is the deconstruction of the Boba Fett legend. Boba Fett, as we said before, he had maybe three or four lines before all of this, and he was faceless. He was, he was the Mandalorian for all intents and purposes because no one saw his face. No one knew anything about him. No one knew anything. He was a big question mark, but he looked cool. And almost instantly, after the Sarlacc pit, he is very obviously stripped of all of his armor by Jawas. And it's like, okay, yep. Everything you expect, we're ripping it away and you are being shown bare bones of someone who has to build himself back up. So it has to be slow arduous painful so narratively the slow pace of this um, episode makes a lot of sense the problem that i have with it is tomorrow morrison he's getting old now and he's he's not able to sell the action as well anymore he just can't do it that's understandable he's getting old and if this is, if we are to be, if we are to believe that this is very quickly following on from Return of the Jedi, you would just kind of assume that he is the same kind of age as what Harrison Ford was when he was Han Solo in those movies. But he's very obviously not. He's Why would got... you make that assumption, though? Just because, for me, every time I've ever watched the original trilogy, I always kind of felt like there was this kind of like 
two sides of op- uh, two sides of a coin between Han Solo and Boba Fett. Han Solo was the lovable rogue with a heart of gold, and Boba Fett was just the cold-hearted mercenary hunter. And I just that's just my personal representation and inference on the characters there. That's just what I assumed. Much like for Harry Potter, um, the character of um, Mad-Eye Moody, I just always imagined him as this really thin guy with this big chin and real fucked up face. And then they got Brendan Gleeson to be him in the movie and it just didn't make any sense to me. He did a good job as the as the character, but it just didn't make sense to the image that I had from the books. That's That's the same difficulty that I'm approaching here. Um, I should note that I, I, I honestly never really thought about how old he must be. I don't know about helmet. I mean, if you kind of think about it, though, he doesn't do very much physical in the original trilogy. He relies on his weaponry, um, more so flamethrower and his laser pistol and stuff, more mm-hmm. so than and his jetpack than he does for any kind of fi- any actual physical fighting. True. Um, I think the the hard thing for me right now is because we are we are shown a Boba Fett that is not a hundred percent. He is coming out of being digested. He is stripped. He is baked in the sun for unknown amount of days. He is held hostage, and even when we get back to a point where he has taken over Jabba's palace. He's still in a rejuvenation chamber, and it, we keep on being told by the computer that the kind of rejuvenation status has been interrupted and stopped. You, he's never a hundred percent, and it's like, okay, they need to pay this off in a big way by the end of the season. He Thank needs. That. I feel like I feel like I feel confident. It, it feels it feels deliberate. Yeah. It feels deliberate. Yeah. The choices they're making now, these aren't J.J. Abrams' choices. These are considered choices by people. And this is where, I mean, I know some people don't like The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. I really did like it. Um, and what I enjoyed about it was I felt like these were people who actually understood these characters and cared about these characters and loved these characters. It's lived and breathed Star Wars like all of us. Instead of getting fuckwits in who don't understand the property, uh, mm-hmm. Like Ryan Johnson, like J.J. Abrams, like I don't understand how Kathleen Kennedy doesn't get it, but she doesn't. Um, these people understand it, I think. And I would look. I mean, they, they could be, they could let me down, but I feel like this is all deliberate. Like when with you, Tamira Morrison isn't much to look at, and you kind of go, mm-hmm. eh, "It's kind of a cool, it's a kind of a cool idea in a way." You just cast a guy again, and in a kind of in the timeline of a show, it kind of makes sense. Like the Tamira Morrison from you know. Um, 20 years ago when they made Attack of the Clones, mm. it's probably been 20 years in the timeline of that universe since that um, cl- yeah. since that he was at that cloning facility and all yada, 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 and until now, 20, 25 years. You've got to look a bit older in it. The life mm-hmm. of a bounty hunter isn't easy, so uh, especially if you've been digested for a while, you know. Um, it's, so, it's a good lens. I was going to say, it's, it's a new therapy in some parts of the world. Um <laughs> I feel like it, so you're right. He's not a particularly convincing looking, you know, badass, but you know he can still go. And the in the uh, in the end of the episode, he kind of proves that. Mm. Um, I was a little bit like, okay, how is this square with the guy we saw in Empire and Jedi? Though, like, mm. he was working for some pretty bad dudes. You know, he came across as a pretty cold hearted, 
you know, mm. badass motherfucker, right? Like he, you know, didn't strike me as a woman fuzzy type. Which yeah. Kind of seems like, you know, oh, I'm not going to rule through fear. I'm going to rule through respect. And like, he has a chance to kill someone who's wronged him. And like, I just feel like the bounty hunter of Jedi mm. and Empire might have done that. And this one is like, yeah. You know, like, it does make me worry with stuff like that, whether they're going to spend too much time kind of flashbacking to explain what they're telling in the story because they want to have a, a good current story and pseudo retconning what's happened before. Like obviously they can't because of the success of the Mandalorian show, they can't go back and retcon any of that stuff that he appeared in, but the time between when Mandalorian started and his escape from the Silent pit, which has already they've already started mining that time period it's going to be interesting to see how they develop that and how they marry that up i have faith in the writers and robert rodriguez as a director the show looks good it fits with the world that we have been shown of the mandalorian which was very much more um, believable as a continuation of the world compared to the um, prequel trilogy or the sequel trilogy it fits with what was in new hope empire strikes back and return of the jedi visually this world feels organic to what we've had before um i just hope that they don't use that flashback crutch too much because half most of the allure of the character of boba fett is mystique and if you explain too much of it, then who cares anymore? We know it's everything. A little bit, yeah, it's a little bit like Han Solo in a way. Like, yeah, we, he was a bit enigmatic. We didn't know that much about where he came from. He was a lovable rogue, the former smuggler. Yeah. You know, he uh, we knew he won the Millennium Falcon in the card game kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I just, you know, when you went with a film, the solo film, mm-hmm. they just one hundred percent like if whatever sticking the landing looks like. The opposite is what they did in that solo movie. Yeah. Um, and if you're gonna and I think if you're gonna tell an origin story, mm-hmm. you are going to eat into that that mystique. Mm-hmm. Can't help it. But mm-hmm. you need to replace it with something else. Yeah. yeah. You know, you need a cool factor or something exciting or a really cool story about where they came from. And if you mm-hmm. don't have that, then don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a good origin story we've ever done it well. And I'm kind of coming up blank, but like, um, you know, there's no reason you couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, like I say, I have faith. I am, I've always been um, an unapologetic liker of Robert Rodriguez's work. And I think that given the right property, he can really do something interesting with it. He is a big fan of Star Wars, he is working with producers like Dave Filoni who is an unabashed Star Wars nerd fan and he's got John Favreau I think working as an executive producer on this at the very least he's in I think this project is in safe hands to deliver something that is honest at the very least to the original trilogy and I have faith in them I I genuinely do this this feels new compared to my gripes with the Mandalorian, which just felt too much like fan fiction of um, sort of, oh yeah, let's just do this. Uh, Season two kind of got a little better, but even then it still wasn't good. This kind of 
having that very visual breaking down of a beloved character is always a good kind of like staking your claim on something. So like you are going to see something that you haven't seen before. And I always want to back that horse anytime someone shows me that. So I'm in for at least a couple more episodes. Well, I've got Disney Plus, so I'm going to watch it anyway. So, mm. you know, um, <laughs> uh, they've got my money already. So I will, I am curious and, you know, it yeah. can't be as bad as, uh, it can't be as bad as some of the other Star Wars properties out there. They seem to be doing all their good work on television for now. Yeah. Um, well, now they're not making films at all. It seems like the film division is still on hiatus. They're going back, licking their wounds, and it's going, ooh, we just had our lunch stolen by the TV division, didn't we? Yeah. Whoops. Uh, well, I mean, depending on who you listen to, there's two divisions don't like each other and they don't get along, and Kathleen Kennedy doesn't like what these guys do and, you know, vice versa. And all of that's, of course, speculation. It might not be true. But, um, you know, can what's her name? The... Um, but Chicky did a Russian doll. Um, he's getting a series, and oh, that's right. Yeah, Leslie Headland is that her name? Um, well, we, we've got a lot of uh, Star Wars coming up. We've got the Ahsoka thing, we've got the Obi Wan thing. We're probably going to have a fucking Yoda thing. Um, it's going to be all over there. It's like young Palpatine, Ooh. Palpatine <laughs> in college. It'd be like Porky's meets Star Wars, everything's Porky's with you. Well, you know, the, the market for, you know, the lewd teen comedies is being disgustingly ignored well, by Hollywood these days. When was the last meatball film? I'd be curious to see what that looked like. A Disney-produced variation of Porky's where they are so determined to get social acceptance into all of their movies. Oh, Plus yeah. It'd be, well, I mean, like, he could be a gay character. We didn't know his sexuality. He could be gay. It's true. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it could be like you know, queer eye for straight guy, but with Palpatine and the Knights of Ray or something. I don't know. I'm in for that. Queer eye I'm... for the dark side. <laughs> I love it. That's an idea. It's, you, you can have that, Disney. That's for free. You can have it. Gratis. <laughs> AAP status would be nice, but you know. <laughs> I'd take best boy. <laughs> you are the best boy. <laughs> On that note, should we have a word from our sponsors? Yes, indeedy. Um, let me get that up and running here. Take it away. And what do you want to talk about when we come back? Let me have a look at my little green book. Um, well, I, I get some, we could probably get on with the business and talk about Go. Sure, we can definitely do that. And our sponsor this week, uh, the movies of uh, $19.99 to celebrate everything go. <laughs> Prep the field for detonation and news. Ten years ago the U.S. government created a secret weapon that could remain completely harmless until its temperature reached 50 degrees. The effective detonation radius is five miles. We gotta shut it down. The man responsible prayed 
it would never fall into the wrong hands. Let's find the prize. Unfortunately... Where is it? It's about to be handed off. Doc, you have to take this to Farm Magruder. Has to be kept cold. To a short order cook. Morning. And an ice cream delivery man. I need your ice cream truck. You are not taking my truck! How far you got to go? Now, go, go, go. all that stands between the bad guys... Andy's ice cream. You have no idea what you're in possession of. Give it to me now or you'll be dead within five minutes. It's for you. And massive destruction. Oh, go, go, go. I made it! I made it! What are you talking about? I'm the one driving! It's sheer luck. Hit him. Take your gun! Doesn't work. It's not even loaded. You hijacked me with an empty gun? When this is all over, remind me to kick your ass! Stay back. I'm taking your phone. He's a dangerous man. He's crazy. I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Oh, hell no. Kick back. Didn't work. Do you think so? And chill. Don't move. Shoot me. Kill him now. Oh! Chill factor. Yes! Oh God. Put your hand in my pocket. We're about to die. You want me to do some freaking? Coming soon to theaters. Ding dong. What the hell are you doing out there? He's getting my jacket. Drag your pimply butt in here and say hi to the guys. Show some class for God's sakes. Timothy Dunphy has a broken home. What are you up to? No. A three-legged dog. Get that mangy flea bag out of this house! And two strikes against him. <laughs> you hit a parked cop car. Oh. His friends may have no future. Cut it out, huh? But he's about to get one, whether he likes it or not. What's a prep school? It's to prepare you for not getting your neck broke by me. You can't send me away my senior year. And the only way he'll stay out of jail is if he can survive this year. Hey, Fonzie. Now he's out of place. No smoking, no drinking, no drugs. No swearing, no sex. Outclassed. Mr. Dunphy, who launched the New Deal? NASA? And seriously outnumbered. Forget about it. You got a better chance of being struck by lightning. It's beautiful. Just what I always wanted. Yeah, I got it at the dentist. From the Farrelly Brothers, the guys who made There's Something About Mary, comes something that will really make your hair stand on end. No matter what you are. Sounds like a real classy broad. You wouldn't know a classy broad if you took a dump on your head. One more thing. Making out is like Chinese dinner. It ain't over until you both get your cookies. Remember, I said that. Outside Providence.
In this small Nevada town, things are going bad for Nick. I want to leave Tropico. I need to advance today or I'm through. No, Nick, I told you in a month or so we'll discuss this. And they're about to get worse. Do you feel like the world's conspiring against you? So what are we going to do? Come on, Nick, as a favor to me. It's a two-man job, Nick, except we need a driver. Christ, that was easy. What did we steal? Can I help you? The guy you stole $40,000 from. I don't have your stash. Then I want reparation. You don't have it by Sunday. This is what your world will look like. $40,000. What now? Someone's gonna get hurt. It's just a question of who. What's idea two? Well, no, I know I have a terrible drinking problem. So we gotta steal the thing outright and somehow make sure Bryce doesn't report it. Make him think he committed a crime. You wanna sit down? This is gonna look worse than it is. The girl that we met at the bar, I was drunk. I swear, I didn't touch her. He didn't do anything to you, did he? If she presses charges, I will go to jail! I guess the second date's out of the question, then. I'm having a crisis of conscience here. <laughs> Tick-tock, tick-tock. I thought our date was Sunday. It was. I bumped it up. Thought you might be getting a little flighty. Game time. Fox Searchlight Pictures presents Alessandro Nivola. I'm in a doghouse. Reese Witherspoon. You're telling me. And Josh Brolin. That's right, baby. Take it all. <laughs> Best laid plans. If you're not in on the plan. I don't know if I want to go through with this. Just hang in there a little longer. I'll have you in two seconds. You're out. You got a funny idea about chivalry. Me and my lady go driving. She always rides up front with me. Well, well, I think it's fair to say neither of us have seen any of those films. No, and probably for good reason, although I am curious about best laid plans. Yeah, it looks like uh, your typical sort of 90s uh, mm -hmm. crime caper. Mm -hmm. um, you get somebody got top billing in that film over Reese Witherspoon and Josh Brolin, Alessandro Nivola, who I have never heard of. Um, yes, you have. Have I? Have, yeah. Have you watched Face Off? A long, long, long time ago. He plays Nicolas Cage's brother. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's a stretch. Like, he was apparently also in American Hustle. Uh, he was oh. recently in The Many Saints of New York. Hmm. Um, he's been a, a regular worker at St. Devil's Knot. I saw that. Um, but, okay. yeah, he's... Jurassic Park 3. Man, yes, 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 he was um, uh, Sam Neill's assistant. Yeah. Um, so, but again, I don't recognize his face. I don't recognize his name. Um, but apparently he was happening in the 90s. He was getting top billing in the yeah. shitty crime thrillers. But um, the reason I picked our sponsor this week or our sponsor came to us, hoping to get you to cinemas back in 1999 to see uh, all of those cinematic treats, was our movie of the week is from 1999 as well. Yes. The uh, Doug Lyman directed Go. Mm-hmm. And you sort of noted earlier um, that you thought Katie Holmes was probably the most famous person in this film, and you're probably right. Now it would definitely be uh, our link to the film, Melissa McCarthy. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, yes, it was kind of hot for uh, – I found out one of the interesting things of this. I'm like, oh, yeah, Katie Holmes was really hot when this came out, like – she was coming straight off Dawson's Creek and she was the next big thing and didn't that work out well? 
Anyway, go. <laughs> the aftermath of a drug deal is told from three different points of view. This mm -hmm. is kind of the American version of train spotting, kind of druggy, kind of thriller, filtered yep. through a Tarantino crime caper, um, mm -hmm. uh, which it's, you know, is of its time, really. Mm -hmm. um, it's basically told from the three perspectives, a story of a bunch of young Californians trying to get some cash, do and deal some drugs, score money and sex in Las Vegas, and generally experience a rush of life. Mm -hmm. It's noted it does star uh, Katie Holmes as Claire. Mm -hmm. We also have Sarah Polly as Rona, Jay Moore as Zach, Scott Wolf, Tay Diggs, whose name sounds very familiar. He was in Thin Equilibrium. Equilibrium, which is a very, very obscure film, really. I mean, it, was, it only found its audience on DVD and video, and I think it's overrated. Um, yes. He was in Rent. That's right. He was in Rent. That's why yep. I know who he is. Uh, that's right. He was also in Ally McBeal around the turn of a century. Um, which might have been what I remember his name from. The other, Kate, the other name that I uh, recognize from this is Tim Timothy Oliphant. Of course, he was a bad guy in the Die Hard film. Mm -hmm. He was in um, Deadwood, possibly and, his most famous role. Let's not forget the one, the only William Fickner. Yeah. A name you'll go, huh? Who's that? You'll type his name into the interwebs and you'll be like, oh, it's that guy. Yeah. Like, he's been in so much shit and he's usually a bad guy. Yeah. Um, for me, he's kind of the, uh, I think of him as the bank manager from The Dark Knight. Yep. Um, you know, he's like, do you know who you're ripping off? Um, which is like a five minute role, but he's really good in it. Like, yep. um, he sells he's it. been in heaps and heaps and heaps of shit. So you'll just go, that guy, you must get that all the time in real life. Like, hey, yeah. you're that guy. Um, he's not exactly a, a household name. Um, if we sort of note, we, we meet, um, Rona and Claire and who's his name? Manny. Uh, yeah. And who's the other guy? The British fella, Simon. Yeah. Um, work at a supermarket, which is a beautifully run down supermarket together. Uh, and essentially, we see the same events as it sort of notes from those three different perspectives. They're all working on sort of towards different sort of goals. Sarah Polly's uh, Rona is overworked. She's on the verge, she's broke. She's on the verge of being uh, evicted from her home. So she's working double shifts to try and earn enough money. Her main motivation here is to earn enough money to pay her rent so she doesn't get evicted. Mm -hmm. uh, she has friends in Claire and Manny, who uh, main motivation silly seems to be to have a good time and take some drugs and go to a dance party on that weekend. Mm -hmm. As was and everyone's goal in the late in the nineties. That was that was what we all did. Mm -hmm. uh, Simon played really well by Desmond Askew, who like I have never heard of before or since. Um, uh, time hasn't been kind to Desmond. Um, <laughs> but I feel he, like I know him, but I don't know him. He's British. You know everyone over there, right? Yeah, we're, we're, it's very small. So, you know, it's it's my like, third um, cousin twice removed on my mother's side. <laughs> he's from the next town over. Um, he was the vicar's son. <laughs> Not all inbred. <laughs> um, but he, he, Simon, Desmond Askew, Simon, is go going on a weekend away to Vegas with his friends, including uh, Tay Diggs um, and... Brecken Meyer. Brecken Meyer was the name I was looking for. 
Um, and he is looking for someone to take over his shift so he can take this trip to Vegas. So mm-hmm. This is how the plot is set up. Rona takes his shift in order to try and earn enough money to avoid being evicted. Uh, while she's on shift that evening, she meets Jay Moa and Jay Moa's Zach and Scott Wolf's Adam. Jay, uh, Adam and Zach are actors on a general hospital style soap opera, I take it to mm-hmm. me to be. And they ask uh, Rona, uh, they are actually there looking for Simon, but when Simon is not there, they ask Rona if they can hook her up, she could hook them up with some party favors. I can't remember the exact language they use, but the insinuation yeah. being they want some ecstasy. Yep. As it turns out, they are working, they are working undercover. They are being used uh, to try and implicate somebody else in uh, as a drug dealer. Uh, they are working for the police. The police in this instance being William Fickner's Burke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rona is, uh, has, obtains the necessary drugs from Timothy Oliphant's Todd Gaines, who is Simon's drug dealer. Mm-hmm. It's going to get a little bit complicated in there, isn't it? I'll check mm-hmm. the while. While we, we catch up with Simon's trip to Vegas, where his friends get um, food poisoning from a uh, from bad shrimp. I think it is the, the shrimp, the shrimp at the yeah. uh, buffet in the casino, yeah. and he is hooking up with hot girls, starting fires, going to strip clubs, and all sorts of shenanigans are going on in Vegas. We, it is linked back to what's going on in Los Angeles. Um, our star and hero this week um, uh, actually plays a woman answering a door. Very, very briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what a performance. I mean, when it comes to you know people opening doors and giving you know, very brief line readings, well, this is the Citizen Kane with door opening roles. Yeah, she gave... 76%. It was wow. Melissa McCarthy, our hat is uh, figuratively mm-hmm. off. <laughs> we we said how um, I, uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me is probably her best role to date. This is before go. <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't she look very, very young in this? And like, she um, so young. I was My like God. about two thirds of the way through. I'm like, fuck, man, did I miss her? Like, yeah, she, she's a named character. Surely she has a line. Um, she's in like person number two or something, or sports car man. Like, she's a, oh, okay, there she is. She's hard to miss. I um, I enjoyed going back and watching this, but it did feel, it did feel a bit dated to me in part. Mm, mm. Um, that three way contrivance of let's look at the same events from three different angles. Look, mm. it's not particularly. You know, new Quentin Tarantino didn't invent it. No. Uh, we did uh, talk a couple weeks ago about a similar film that did that. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget which one it was, but like they talked about how it was done by I think it's Kurosawa yep. originally. Um, look at the same events from a few different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the nineties, it was really Quentin Tarantino who owned that and made it famous he with that with sure. you know, Reservoir Dogs and then Pulp Fiction. Yeah, um, sort of did it twice, and that became very hip at the time to do yeah. that. Uh, and the film does kind of follow that kind of um, that kind of formula that Tarantino mm. established. Um, fortunately, it does it pretty nicely. It's Doug Liman, who, of course, if you don't know who Doug Liman is, probably most famous for his work on the Bourne films. What the first one? Uh, did he do another one? He did the Identity. Didn't he come back for one? I can't remember. No, he only um, he only did that, and then he was, I think, producer or executive producer on the rest of them. 
He, but he, he also did. directed Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow, which is a great fucking film. Mm-hmm. Um, let's not mention Chaos Walking. He's he's someone who seems to always end up getting these projects that have really cool concepts and he delivers safely, but they often end up being picked up by someone else and taken like the born the born movies everyone just automatically thinks of paul greengrass and the way that he did the the three sequels um and people kind of forget about the born identity somewhat but the born identity is kind of the best one out of all of them because it's it just, really great actually um, it's it a concise story <laughs> um so look doug lyman he knows mm. how to shoot a film do as mm. well chaos walking aside um <laughs> he, he does pretty well in this one this is very early in his career i think this is after he did swingers yeah this is a film i haven't seen but i know it was very popular in the indie scene in it's the 90s. a long time since i saw that movie and just looking back at some of the screenshots of it it's weird seeing a young john favreau always weird when you sort of people become famous later but you see like yeah. scott wolf in this film you're like oh goodness me he was mm. so pretty when he was young yeah uh, and again speaking of people it's interesting there isn't really a standout star in this film you no. said it was like katie holmes is probably the, the the it girl at the time she was going to be mm. the big thing and i was watching this going why didn't she appear in the dark night why did they replace her and apparently it was scheduling conflicts mm. um and Christopher Nolan did want her back, and I'm like, that's some nice PR there, Chris. Because um, <laughs> uh, like, she's like, oh, no, I was really busy. And if you look up that year, but like the year, that period of time in which The Dark Knight was made, she was doing squat. So <laughs> unless she was having a kid, which could have been, she had a kid. Been, so look, you know. uh, anyway. In handcuffs in a basement in Tokyo. <laughs> being being, like, being you know, hit over the head of a Xenu poster or something. Um <laughs> Sarah Polly, I think, after this was immediately when I saw this the first time, was Mm. the person, the character, or the actor I took away from this going, Yeah, she's got something, she's gonna Mm -hmm. be a star. Mm -hmm. That didn't work out either. Of course, she the only film I can remember her doing was the uh 2004 Dawn of a Dead remote, yeah, which she was excellent in again as well. I did do a little bit of digging around to see if I could figure out why, and apparently, she just likes working in Canada a lot, yeah. I remember she was in Splice that I liked, but it's a weird movie. And interestingly, she has done had one acting role since then. And yeah. that was 12 years ago. Um, yeah. I know she directs a lot now. So mm-hmm. she's did a series a couple of years ago called Hey Lady, which I don't know. Um, she was make in it down here. <laughs> Oh, that's so, not, not the, the, the one that I was thinking of. It's a different one. Uh, and she's got a film coming out this year called Women Talking. I know her documentary, Stories We Tell, in 2012 was highly regarded. Mm-hmm. Um, so with her new film coming out this year has Ben Wishaw, Rooney Mara, Frances McDormand, Claire Foy in it. So those are some big names. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's a documentary or – no, it's not. A group of women in an isolated Mennonite religious colony in Bolivia as they struggle to reconcile their faith a string of sexual assaults committed by the colony's men. That sounds interesting. Uh, not particularly uplifting, but uh, interesting nonetheless. I remember thinking Sarah was going to be a big star, but it, you know, apparently she likes staying in Canada a lot, which mm. is a lovely place. Um, yeah. 
Jay Mower, I thought, and Scott Wolf worked really well in this film together, had incredible chemistry yes. together as the TV stars. So um, I guess it's a 22-year-old film. You can 23-year-old film. You can spoil it. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the process of uh, trying to track down um, uh, Rona uh, at the rave, which is – I remember one of the most claimed to fame of this film I talked about last time was I think they actually shot it at a rave. It had an actual rave, and they shot some footage right, at it. yeah. Um, I think it was this big thing was, um, oh, well, our, our stage raves look staged, so we went to a real one. But mm. <laughs> the rave, they are uh, reversing their car and actually accidentally managed to run her over quite brutally, it should notice, and then dump her body into a ditch. Um, it uh, was, and- that was kind of my favourite sequence of the whole thing and seeing it from outside of the car and then seeing it from the inside of the car, it plays kind of darkly and comically at the same time <laughs> just so like the way that it just happens kind of like that snap almost um almost meet joe black style you know that when uh, brad pitt's characters walking and they keep looking back over each other's shoulders missing each other looking and then just suddenly boom brad pitt gets hit in not just once but twice and it's that comical shock moment the fact that that happens and then the car coming back and just stopping in front of Timothy Oliphant's character just really ominously like, oh, my God, these people don't even care who sees them. And then the just the shunting her off the roof. Oh, that was brutal. It's, it's I guess brutal, the hilarious part of that was so funny. Was, at that moment in time, she was in the middle of a very tense confrontation yeah. with uh, Timothy Oliphant's Todd over the fact that she had ripped him off for the uh in a drug deal and he was basically had his gun out was threatening to shoot her at which point she was mowed down by zach uh, scott wolf and uh jay moa's characters um and he said timothy oliver's characters hilarious look at confusion on his head when he sees her body dumped onto the into the ditch he's like yeah that's a bit rude this expression going you just don't dump people into a ditch but dude you were just about to shoot her yeah he sells it so well the way that timothy kind of plays his character is a little bit again using brad pitt reference here but um brad pitt from thelma and louise crossed with a little bit of gary oldman's character from true romance it's like a weird combination of those two it is like okay all right sure (laughs) i'll go with that it's interesting that this film is intended to be a short film the, mm. the writer, um, John August, originally wrote a section, the Rona section of a script, so the first chapter of the three, mm. uh, and that was what he's te- intended to be, the short film. And then I guess it got picked up and he added the next two sections of a film about why Simon went to Vegas and who Adam and Zach were. Mm. But I feel like that shows in this film in the sense that I feel like the first chapter of Rona's story is the best written and the most developed. Yeah. And um, Todd... Some of the interplay between Todd and um, and Rona and uh, Claire, uh, is, Claire is left behind with Todd as collateral as part of the drug deal. Um, <laughs> so some of the dialogue between those characters is really brilliant, especially mm. on the first meeting between between Rona and Todd, who don't really know each other very well. She's like, he's like, you know, like you're, you're asking me for a favor. And, you know, I'm more likely to blow, blow someone, my friends, and do one of them a favor. So you're not my friend. So what do you think your chances are of mm. having a favor? And, you know, 
and like it's really beautifully written actually mm, yeah. um it's very snappy uh dialogue out of all of it it definitely is the strongest of the three stories um and did you ever watch rules of attraction yeah yeah i like that film that was by the guy who got the oscar for pulp fiction his name escapes me right now he oh, was the guy who wrote. yeah um and i got a lot of kind of proto rules of attraction vibe with this because unlike pop fiction and reservoir dogs where they are grown-ass adults in these um crazy scenarios and they're interweaving stories and all of that sort of stuff this this was in a similar way to um rules of attraction that youthful exuberance of 99 to 2005 where the world was your oyster every teen movie everyone was they they never the the average person was part clerk's character part upper crust kind of person where money was never an option and it was just always ended up serving as a comical effect and that's a, a driving force of it there's a little bit of ferris bueller's day off kind of vibe to it it's a weird amalgamation that these it's an odd little teen movie in a way, isn't it? Like it, and interestingly, they had to hire actors who were a little older than teens due to the subject matter. Mm. Um, and interestingly, I guess the other part of it felt a little bit dated for me. And this mm. could be very much due to the fact that, in addition to the film being twenty three years older, so am I. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that the the vibe of it, um, that it was all about getting high and doing drugs and you know taking ecstasy and stuff like that and going out for a party and like. Mm. Look, I don't watch a lot of youth television or, or cinema these days, like films made for younger folks. Like, I don't even know if there are many anymore. Most of it seems to have transitioned to television, I think. Yeah, not uh, really. We talked about it in the past, the idea of the coming-of-age movie comedy, like American Pie kind of thing, and Ferris Bueller. It doesn't really happen too much anymore. I mean, there's a film out at the moment I'm very keen to see called Licorice Pizza, which um, I think is a coming-of-age film, but more of a 70s mm. you know, Paul Thomas Anderson-style film, which is not, you know, not exactly American Pie. Um, but <laughs> it's it doesn't... You know, the idea of a film where characters are all about taking drugs and getting high, mm. I think television, maybe you could get away with that. I don't feel like that would fly in cinema these days quite so easily. Like, it might mm. be a little bit controversial to be having a film you're marketing to teens and, you know, older teens yeah. who, and it's about taking ecstasy and it kind of, kind of glamorizes it a little yeah. bit. Like the party looks sick. Like, you know, they're yeah. all having a pretty great time apart from when they're almost dying. Um, it's part of drug deals, but you know, it's like, get yourself a good deal. That's the message. It's the message of a film. Um, and I compare it to a British film that came out. I feel like about the same time called human traffic. Oh geez, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a really, really a film I really, really enjoyed. It was about the same Some year, the year before. Ninety nine, same year. Mm. Um, and again, that's sort of the same thing. So oh, nothing left now but pub, pubs, clubs, drugs, and parties. Mm. You know, um, and the music on the soundtrack was great. It, it really was the anti train spotting because it made drugs yeah. look cool. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. John John Sim was fantastic in that movie um it's it's always got a, a place in my heart but um and i have the soundtrack i loved it but this is not mm -hmm. quite but not quite as glamorous it doesn't make drugs look quite as glamorous it's a bit of a an ugly side but 
I feel like that has that dates a little bit. I don't think we make films glamorizing. No, you have a drug culture anymore like that. It almost it's almost the the anti it's almost like the descendant of a film like Easy Rider from the sixties, which was all about you know tune in and drop out and smoke weed and yeah you know, yeah that yeah that's thing. fair. Um, but the film about having a good time on drugs, don't know if that's going to happen. Well, again, it could be happening on television. I have no idea what's happening on young people's television these days. Maybe it's happening on Roblox. I just learned that was a thing recently. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's a big thing. The, the way you're saying young people television, it just instantly, in, in my head, I'm just picturing like Christian channels, and that's just disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, it's probably a whole. I mean, I don't even know if kids watch TV very much anymore. I mean, or when not. I say TV, are you you're inclusive? You know, your streaming, and maybe YouTube as well. But like, actual scripted television made mm. and not targeted at a young audience. I assume it still exists, um, but I don't. I, I certainly haven't consumed any in the last, you know, twenty years or so. So maybe they are still making this type of stuff, but just putting it on. Yeah. you know a streaming service somewhere that i don't know about yeah yeah it seems like at the moment really all that we're getting is sex superheroes drama sci-fi fantasy no one comes of age anymore well unless you're paul thomas anderson apparently because that seems to be a film he makes regularly again and again and again uh, <laughs> um but that's a good thing someone's got to do it mm-hmm. uh, this is this is by the way FYI, INDB says there is a human traffic to revolution in development. Okay. Directed by the same guy, written by the same guy, starring Danny Dyer. Like, uh, oh, no. I have no idea what that would be, but I desperately hope it gets made because I would love to see it. No, if Danny Dyer is involved, that's a warning sign, sir. <laughs> um, but I, so it, I, I must say, I enjoyed Go again. It was not not me putting your boots in a little bit. It's a subject matter I just don't think is doesn't feel contemporary um, terribly much anymore. And and that's not necessarily a criticism. I mean, maybe oh, I wonder if kids miss this kind of thing. Like people like seeing themselves at the movies, um, and I feel that's why people like seeing American Pie so much. Was like. People liked seeing themselves lose their virginity. You know, remember how awkward that phase of their life was. And seeing themselves at the big screen doing that was kind of cool. I don't know anymore. I, I really don't. Like, the last movie that really kind of captured any audience saying it was great to see me represented on screen that made any kind of headlines or sort of like made any ripples that I felt was Black Panther and the importance of seeing a black superhero. And that's, oh, that's I think it's certainly, certainly true of, of like the general representation thing. I, I imagine hmm. if but you are kind death. of slice of life kind of things. But yeah, like it's a whole group of people. As I say, of course, you are a group of people if you're African, dark skinned, you know, like African Americans, <laughs> African people. That's a group. But like, yeah. <laughs> say an age group rather than a racial or otherwise sexual or gender identities versus group like young folks hmm. seeing themselves on the screen losing their virginity young folks at college seeing you know, remember we talked about we had a joke about it but the college film was hmm. a staple there in the 70s and 80s 
Yeah. Um, I don't think he'd make them the same way anymore. But like mm-hmm. even through the late nineties, I'm thinking of films like Slackers or um uh, there's actually a really crappy one called Dead Man on Campus. Um, oh, um no. you know there was one that had one of the Baldwins in it. Um I can't remember, but it, Oh shit. Um yeah. What was that? Reality Bites, you know, yeah, like yeah. these kind of films about you're in college, you're not, you're 21, 20, 21, you, you're a film like Clerks where it's about people who are smart but haven't really decided to do anything with their life, you know. Well, I wonder if it's, again, kind of a social thing as well. Like when you think about um, American Pie, um, that was at the, the birth of the explosion of the internet. Um, and that was a cultural zeitgeist thing. And you think of Porky's and the generation that that was and the the social things that came up about that. I feel like after like 2005, let's just say, till kind of now slash a couple of years ago, as we've got sort of like the Me Too movement and now into pandemic kind of thing, there's not really been that much that has identified itself in society as a touchstone moment for people. Like we've got, we're still getting a lot of that um, kind of nostalgia stuff we talked about before. Um, one of the reasons why Stranger Things was so successful is because it was in this, that big nostalgia vibe of the Stephen King early kind of teens growing up and um, John Carpenter kind of things and that, that very nostalgia thing. And I don't know whether there's been enough to happen in the last kind of 10, 15 years to really kind of identify as a period in time. Oh, there would be. We just wouldn't have noticed it. It's fair. It's it's like, like, oh, do you remember when, when um, oh, my God, when Fortnite first came out? Or Minecraft, like I, I, I saw a a, a, a video game review pop up on my YouTube channel. I don't know if you've ever watched a channel called Zero Punctuation. If you like video game reviews, he's fantastic. But if it, he did a review of Minecraft in ten years ago, um, now I remember when I bought it when it just came out. And so Minecraft has been a thing. You look at all the the, the millennials and the, the Gen Zs and their their yeah. fond reflection of like um, the the SpongeBob memes, like. I yeah. miss SpongeBob. I was much too old for that by the time it came out. Or um, all the nostalgia around Space Jam this year. Like I heard Space Jam Two was really terrible, but um, you know there was a lot of nostalgia for that film. But I was eighteen, nineteen when that came out, so it kind of missed me. Um, so I'm sure there is a, quite a bit of nostalgia for people who grew up watching certain TV shows or remember certain events. Maybe like it's Obama getting elected. Maybe it's um you know i don't know whatever major events maybe it's something horrible like i don't know um whatever school massacres in the states or mm-hmm. you know the, the tsunami in the early 2000s like yeah. um people we do try to track things at disasters for you and me maybe it's 9 11 you know yeah. um so fires. that's kind of that thing. kind of thing so it, it's kind of where you go well hang on a second when was that bushfire where was i living you know that kind of thing so I, i'm mm-hmm. sure really the cultural touchstones for these people but maybe the thing is maybe it's better to make a, a film like Spider-Man mm-hmm. that get people like you and me to go along. But the kid behind me who at the cinemas, who was like five or six or something, he gets to go as well. And like, 
that's the film, right? Like they get young people, they get teenagers, and they get older people as well. And so you get if you can capture all of that audience, then you're going to get a lot more potential customers. And if they made a you know, a 2021 version of Porky's, for example, whatever that might look like, you know, I can actually imagine that we are not far away from having something like that. And the comedy of the college slash university student developing their tastes for love, for life, for education, for responsibility amidst COVID. There is an infinite amount of comedy that you can get from that and the restrictions that literally happen because of social distancing and things like that, plus the general pressures and the difficulties and bringing in Tinder as the way that people hook up and stuff like that. And having that that social commentary of, oh, I'm still using Tinder even though I even though we're in quarantine and things like that. It's there's there's a lot there's ripe stuff to happen there, and I imagine that it is being produced right now. But I hope so. I hope so. Kids deserve yeah. it. I mean, maybe I would hope. I mean, we had growing up films. You think of films like Stand by Me, Labyrinth, mm. Dark Crystal, yeah. these touchstone films of our childhood. You know, the, the coming of age stories, and like. I'm very surprised that people don't want to see themselves coming of age. But, you know, the, the, the boomers made fuck ton of films about themselves coming of age in the 60s. Yeah. We did it a bit. Gen yeah. X's, which is what we're talking about here. Go, human mm-hmm. traffic, train spotting. These are the depressing fucking coming of age films that, w- that our generation made, you know, <laughs> 500 Days of Summer. Like, you know, what is where the, 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 the millennials, the, the Zeds, like, I mean, that's probably the next wave, I guess, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Don't seem to be seeing it. Like I said, licorice pizza set in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a weird time, but um, let's go let's go back to go. Um, any final thoughts on no, go? I am good with go. You have the keys if you have nothing else to say. Yeah, I have nothing else to say, but to announce our link in the chain, we are following the writer of the movie, John August to one of his earlier works, the 2000 release, the non-Disney animated movie, Titan A.E. Mm, I reckon I saw this a very long time ago. Yeah. Um, it was kind of a touchstone in animation at the time. Mm-hmm. It really was. It was one of the um, one of the big movies to come out. It was, I think, legendary um, and a non-Disney anime, animator Don Bluth and it was one of the relatively early pioneers of using a lot more um, computer-generated animation in amongst it. Um, has Matt Damon and Drew Barrymore as the two main leads plus a cast of plenty in a science fiction saga that... Um, I'm really excited to go back to and watch because it's been a while since I saw this movie and I remember not liking it the first time I watched it, watching it a few years later and kind of going, oh, I was wrong. I wonder where I'm going to end up third time round. Yeah, I remember thinking it was all right when I saw it and that was probably 20 plus years ago when it came out. Um, it doesn't have a very good um, surprise. I'm saying because my main memories are like, I remember the, the the animation being really cutting edge and really high tech and and special, but it's got a forty eight meta score and a six point six on IMDb. So I'm curious as well. Will I um will it hold up? Yeah, but um that is going to be our next 
just to note, John Leguizamo's in it, which does open up a link to Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, just so. And Bill, Bill Pullman as well. Jenny Garofalo, Tone Loke. Exactly. There's a there's a lot of Nathan Lane in there. So um, yeah, I, I have given you an easy one to branch off of, and it'll Indeed. be interesting to see how it goes from there. Should we? Yeah, uh, we're getting long. Have we got time for one more before we head off for the? Yeah, sure. What, what do you want to talk about? I want to give a, a quick shout out to uh, Don't Look Up. Which Don't is the, look up. Yeah, the Netflix movie, right? Yes. Have you had a look at it yet? Uh, I haven't watched it yet. No. Um, I would recommend it. I would be curious about your thoughts. Um, okay. Again, this is so this is directed and written by Adam McKay. He of The Big Short, Vice. I think he did the Anchorman films with Will Ferrell, if I'm not mistaken. Awesome. Um, uh, he used to work with, anyway, I think he used to work with Will Ferrell. Don't quote me on that. But um, they had a bit of a falling out or something. They right? have had a bit of a falling out. They don't work together. Anymore. As you noted, incredible cast here. Mm-hmm. So we have Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep, Kate Blanchett, Jonah Hill, Mark Rylance, Tyler Perry, Ron Perlman, Timothy Chalamet, Ariana Grande, Melanie Linsky, Himesh Patel, Michael Chiklis. Um, Goodness me, that is it, one hell of a, it's a hell of a cast. Um, a lot of Oscar winners in there, a lot of big names. Uh, mm-hmm. and this is a Netflix exclusive. So, mm-hmm. um, now I watched this a couple of weeks ago with Michelle. She mm-hmm. loved it. Mm-hmm. I was a bit mixed on it. I initially didn't like it. I've given it a bit of a think and maybe my initial assessment was a bit harsh, but it is one of those ones that's splitting critics and audiences. Okay. So it's a 50 meta score with a 7.3 on IMDb from the audience. So oh, yeah. um, people like it a little bit more. I'm meeting, seeing a lot of people who like it. I didn't love it. Mm. Um, I think it's a film that is less than the sum of its parts. Okay. Two low-level astronomers must go on a giant media tour to warn mankind of an approaching comet that will destroy planet Earth. So that is Leo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. They play low-level astronomers. She is a PhD candidate. He is, uh, I see her supervisor. He's an actual doctor. He plays Dr. Randall Mindy. She plays Kate DiBiaschi. Um, And while they're doing observations, she discovers this comet. Uh, Previously undiscovered. They do the calculations, Mm -hmm. and it's going to bullseye Earth. And it's big enough that it's basically going to be an extinction-level event. Okay. Um, They... Escalated up through, um, you know, the, the Office of Planetary Defense, I think it's called, which is actually one of those classic Adam McKay moments where they go, and he goes, Oh, we're going to call the Office of Planetary Defense. And like one of the characters goes, Is that a real thing? And there's like <laughs> text on the screen goes, Yes, it's a real thing. Here's their badge. Um, and I'm like, <laughs> First up, I think that's probably, I think, the only Adam McKay wink and nod at the audience. But, okay. you know, if you've seen the big short, there were quite a few of them in there, like, mm-hmm. you know, Margot Robbie explaining things in the bath and stuff like that. That's, yeah, it's, he doesn't do that much here. Um, and they finally get to the White House to brief the president, who is played by Meryl Streep in a kind of uh, Sarah Palin, Trumpian, you know, okay. uh, melding. Um, yeah. And, they're trying to warn them that, you know, we've got to do something, you know, the usual Armageddon-style thing of blowing it up or something to try and save the Earth, deflect it. Um, Mel Streep's um, chief of staff is played by Jonah Hill. He mm-hmm. is her character's son. 
So again, there's that Trump link of like him, her employing yeah. family members in senior White House roles. They are less than interested in selling, trying to um, trying to actually address the problem because they think it's going to go against them in midterm elections that are coming up. Um, okay. Kate Blanchett plays a Fox News esque uh, news anchor mm-hmm. uh, who uh, Randall, Dr. Mindy, and Kate go on the show, and you know they're like. Um, Think like um, very light and fluffy. Think like the Channel Nine Today show here in Australia, who are always just trying to make a lot, make it light and fun, make the news light and fun. And they're trying to deliver this news about, you know, this comet uh, coming to destroy Earth, and they just won't take it seriously. Next um, up, this squirrel was water skiing. <laughs> that kind of thing, and so um, that's kind of a gist of the film. It's kind of, I assume, a metaphor for how we've handled in society the uh, the global warming debate in a sense that here's these scientists over here screaming, going, it's a thing, it's real, it's coming for us, and we need to do something about it now. And everyone's over here going, oh, it's a little bit inconvenient to pay attention to this thing, and mm. we're not really interested in addressing it right now, to the point where they actually start to try and discredit the scientists behind it. Like They, <laughs> they frame uh, Kate as being mentally ill, um, they sort of question Dr. Mindy's credentials and, you know, um, it gets to the point where they can actually see the comet in the sky mm-hmm. and the uh, president, uh, um, played by Meryl Streep, is holding rallies where she's like playing, telling people, don't look up. That's what they want you to do. They want you to look up, you know, <laughs> and, it's like, and that's like they got pins saying, don't look up. Um, it sounds almost like a parody of how Trump dealt with COVID. It's, it is. The COVID's in there yeah. as well, but I think it might have been written before then, but don't quote me. I could be wrong. I took it to be about global warming, but I guess it could be about any one of these because, mm. they, they, I mean, the, the recent uh, right-wing fuckknuckles who run countries, including our own, uh, have kind of specialised in, in deflecting and telling people not to look up. Um, yeah. But um, it's... It's less than the sum of its parts because it's not very funny. Okay. Um, and for me, I my criticism of it was it was very broad. It was very machine gun, a hose of jokes squirting at the screen. You know, um, I compare it to something like it's definitely a parody, a satire, a political mm. satire. But I would compare it to something like Doctor Strangelove, which okay. maybe maybe isn't fair. That's like comparing, you know. Any basketball, hey, well, you're not Michael Jordan, so you know. Um, I think Dangerous Strange Love is kind of the, the Michael Jordan of political satires. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the way you're describing it, I'm kind of feeling a little bit of um, kind of wag the dog, mm. but less tight than that and less smart than that. Mm. Um, I, I kept thinking of Dr. Strange Love, and one of my main criticisms of this film is it's too long. I know people are going to be shocked to hear me say that because I never say that about films. I need, need too, t-shirt. It's too it's long. Too long. Cut <laughs> your film. This is, I, and this is, I think, a problem with Netflix productions, right? They, they don't care if people don't like it. It's got mm-hmm. famous people in it. You've already paid for Netflix. You're probably going to watch it. Is he go? Oh, I know. It's got Leo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence and Mel Streep in it. I'll take a look at it. And mm-hmm. most people have already paid for their Netflix, right? So. They're not going to tell their friends, actually, it's a bit shit. Don't go and see it. So, you know, it can be a blessing and a curse in a way. Adam McKay gets full creative control here. Mm. He to do whatever the fuck he wants. 
Um, and you know, in, mostly I would say, yeah, I, I want a director to be able to make the film he wants to make, and that's a good thing. Yeah. But at the same time, sometimes I think you also do need a little bit of an art hand on the shoulder going, Adam, mate, did you really need that scene? Could you tighten it up a little bit? You cut 20 minutes, half, 20 minutes, half an hour out of this, and you've yeah. got a really tight, funny satire, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Strangelove is 90 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And that is arguably the funniest, most cutting, witty uh, political satire ever made. Um it, it, this could have been in that category for me if they tightened it up. But mm. this is this constant stream of jokes after joke after joke, and it just it just felt really broad and unfocused to me. Now mm. that's not to say it's a bad film by any stretch. It's too long. It's a bit unfocused. There's a bit there are some flat spots in here, um, and kind of the word that came to mind was silly. Okay. And, and I mean, obviously, a comedy is allowed to be silly. I mean, a silly comedy can still be a lot of fun if you think of something like Dumb yeah. and Dumber, you know, a very funny movie, but it's stupid. The characters are ridiculous, you know. But I think, as political satire, I don't know, silly maybe doesn't sit well with me on a political satire level. Like, it... I guess if you're trying to have a message in it as well, which it does regardless of what the intent was it does sound like there is a message in the movie most definitely i don't know if unless you are extraordinarily skilled and talented to deliver a product you're probably not going to be able to deliver that genuine message through silly funny yes silly is a different animal i think though look i have to come out and put my hand over here i think I might be, from an audience perspective, the outlier. Mm. Because most people seem to be, uh, to a person, I'm seeing threads and threads and threads of people online, people I know saying how much they loved it, how good they thought it was. And again, like Michelle, she thought it was brilliant. So Mm. I'm just being the usual curmudgeon, which everyone expects me to be. Mm. I just sounded a little exotic. It didn't quite land as punches enough for me. It just kind of felt like, I always go back to it. I saw a comedian about 15, 16, more than that, years and years ago, during the bush rain, is an Australian comedian, get up and do a set at the comedy festival where he just made jokes about George W. Bush. And I'm like, this is probably 2006, 2007. And you're like, come on, dude. You know, you're you're punching. You're really, it's such an easy target now, right? Like, I mean, he's, he, has, he absolutely has zero credibility. Mm. He's a joke to everybody. I don't, it just kind of felt lazy. Yeah, it's just punching, punching Bush again and again and again, considering how these jokes have been done for six or seven years. Ah, Bush is an idiot. Ah, like, you know, yeah, we know. Um, so it kind of felt like a little bit like that. It's like, you know, people are stupid. Ha ha. Politicians can't be trusted. Ha ha. You know, it's, mm. we've seen that a lot. We've seen that a lot. When you I think just kind that... of felt like, yeah, yeah, no, 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 all of this. Can you, can you just tell me a cool story as well? Or yeah. something funny or. I mean, for for just just in my mind, what I was kind of hoping because I haven't watched the trailer for it, I have kind of kept myself neutral of it. And with the title "Don't Look Up," I was kind of hoping that they were going to just subvert expectation and just kind of go for the first third of the movie. It's them trying to be genuine and say, "Hey, look, no, you you need to look up," and then them going, "Okay, this isn't working. Let's tell them the opposite." And the, the rest of the movie is them just telling everyone no and it actually being more successful, telling them to not do something versus than just telling them the truth. 
you're right on that first point. I mean, I, I feel like maybe that was what it was missing. It maybe I felt like I wanted a satire that played it straight, and, mm. and to a degree, I think that was the again to go back to Doctor Strange Love. I mean, at times, mostly for apart from the obvious, you know, ridiculous jokes like the guy riding the bomb, and <gasps> said, you know, um, it was actually play. It looked like a straight movie, or if you look like a film like mm. um, Airplane Flying High in Australia, that looked like a standard you know, uh, airplane disaster for me, even hired actors who were the kind of actors you would see in an airplane disaster film. And obviously it became very quickly evident that it wasn't, but they kind of played it like it was, you know? And so I'm having trouble. Maybe I'm not making myself clear here. I don't know, but it it seemed silly. It didn't play itself straight enough for it to be a proper satire and it wasn't funny enough for it to be stupid. So it didn't quite fit into either we sort of had a leg in both camps and it just it didn't quite work for me it's not a terrible film by any stretch like the performances to a person are excellent so like i said it is not the sum of its parts like everyone in it is having a great fucking time meryl strips chewing the chewing the um <laughs> uh chewing the scenery mark rylance basically plays the character he played in ready player one again um <laughs> fine he was obviously good at it um but you're like oh it's a bit odd you're doing exactly the same voice but he basically plays sort of a steve jobs elon musky type character um okay. jonah hill's back in form again kicking goals uh mm-hmm. timothy chalamet's whole subplot is a bit superfluous but what he does here is really nice he can he can do comedy reasonably well bit mm-hmm. of range so everybody's very good uh, and if the jokes land for you, you'll probably have a good time with it. Okay, I'm still, I'm still definitely going to check it out. I mean, I definitely. Listen, well. I'm in the minority in this. Most people seem to be enjoying it, apart from the critics. Mm. Maybe it's a little, maybe it cuts a little too close for them. <laughs> Could be. I'm not sure. I mean, it's just it. Sometimes things just land with a general populace, the people who see a lot of films, like you know, like you, you and I do, and, and the people who are real critics who see a lot more films than us. So. If anybody would like us to review films properly, we'll take stuff for free. We take free stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like it's, you see a lot of these things, you kind of like, yeah, I've seen you do, I've seen people do this and I've seen people do this better. Mm. But mm. it's kind of also, it's it's a huge free hit. I saw it uh, described somewhere. It's kind of a lefty version of Armageddon. Um, okay. And I kind of feel like it's also preaching to be converted. It's like, it's like Michael Moore films back in the day. Like, mm-hmm. like if you agreed with Michael, you'll go and you're gonna have a great fucking time. If mm-hmm. you don't like Michael Moore, you're just not gonna see it. Yeah. So, so the ratings would probably be either trolls who are giving it one star or people who love it. And I feel like the people who are attracted to the story's message are gonna think it's great. Okay. All right. Well, that kind of leads into a little bit what you were saying there. Um, you came up with the idea that we do a little bit of uh, an in review of 2021 for some of our movies and i said yes that's a great idea but i need time because i need to remember everything that i've watched which means going back through all of my notes <laughs> um so next week we're gonna have quite a show we're gonna be talking about our chain movie of the week which was titan ae we will have a bit of a review of 2021 um no doubt we will have some more bits i'm hoping this week i'll be able to go to ghostbusters afterlife and um, we'll have some more thoughts on uh, the book of Boba Fett. But I actually wanted to ring out this episode with a little bit of in memoriam 
for Betty White. Passed away just before the turn of the new year. That's cold, right? Three weeks out from 100. Yeah, but I, I, I saw a meme online of Betty White at the gates of heaven and just um, uh, St. Paul there just going, sort of like, well, if people are saying you died too soon at 99, you had a really good life. Mm. <laughs> but the thing um, is, I don't think I could name a single thing I'd seen her in apart from the Golden Girls. I know Golden Girls, and she was in um, The Proposal, Ryan Reynolds, Sandra Bullock rom-com from... 2009? Yeah. And that's kind of it. But she's she was a living legend, and you just look at anything that she was in, she just was living a life. And whilst she she didn't really do anything that... I have an em- emotional investment in or anything like that. She was one hell of a personality and she's going to be missed for sure. I used to like the Golden Girls back in the 80s when it was on telly. It was a, mm. it was a decent enough show. Yeah. I, I remember, um, what was it? Uh, the, the, the grandmother of the group was actually younger than one of the other actresses. Um, yeah, I think um, Estelle Getty was older than Rue McClanahan. Uh, sorry, B. Arthur, I think. Yeah, I younger, think, so. I think than, than the woman who was. Uh, Shell says Betty White was also in a great community episode. I think um, everybody's been in a community episode at least one time or another. I think it's like <laughs> if you get a SAG union card, you get, sorry, you need to be in an episode of community. That's just the rules. Um, <laughs> if you recall, Shell, what season and episode, um, we could track that down potentially and maybe. Uh, maybe check it out for for next week's show. Just a quick, a yeah. quick, um, quick uh, full stop to the um, to the Betty White uh, memorial because I noticed last night that's on um, that's on iView as well. So community, yeah. it's on Netflix, it's on Prime, I think, and it's on iView. I think it's everywhere. <laughs> but um, interesting note that Quentin Tarantino appeared in an episode of um, Golden Girls as an Elvis impersonator. Uh, Shelly came in season two, episode one for that. But there we go. Or we'll, I will try and endeavor to make sure <laughs> I watch the episode, um, for next week because I, like I said, I can only ever remember her from Golden Girls, yeah. But there's also that famous story she had a TV show in the 50s or something when she had uh, um, African American performers on, was told not to, and then she basically told them to get over it. <laughs> That's the story, anyway. Well, on that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, We hope that you had a great Christmas and New Year, and we will be continuing this show because not even God can cancel us. Uh, I've already gone through what's going to happen next week, but we talked about Go. We talked about The Matrix uh, Resurrections, The Silency on Netflix, The Book of Boba Fett on Disney+. Plus. We talked about Don't Look Up on Netflix. And... Didn't get a chance to talk about Wheel of Time, but that can hold. That's not a problem. Also, I mean, just to give some the taste and some, a bit of a seed for next week, because like you said, I had a hundred things to like. I had a lot of spare time. Um, yeah. <laughs> I watched King Richard, the new Will Smith, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Wing Sisters uh, drama. Um, I got to see the tragedy of Macbeth uh, at the Astor as well. The uh, Apple, Apple, yeah, Apple production um, with um, Denzel Washington as Macbeth. Mm-hmm. I got to see Boss Level starring Frank Grillo, Naomi Watts, and Mel Gibson in a video game movie, I guess. 
And I just yesterday got to catch the new Prime Amazon Prime uh, mm-hmm. movie, uh, Being the Ricardo, starring um, Javier Bardem and Nicole Kidman about the uh, Desi Andes and uh, Lucille Ball. So that's all stuff. If we have time, we can squeeze it in next time. Until then, ladies and gentlemen, thank you and good night. Good night.